ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Australia is looking down the barrel of a difficult bushfire season and we're going to need as many good firefighters as we can get. Since he was a little boy, James always wanted to be a firefighter. He was an observant chap, knew the lay of the land and was passionate about where he lives in WA's goldfields. The only thing was, on paper, he might not have seemed like the perfect candidate for firefighting. One of them guys who's really committed... Very smart. Sometimes, you know, I don't even think he think he's deaf. He just straight in as a happy bloke. Being deaf and having a hearing problem, I mean, it doesn't stop him. Nothing's too hard for him, really. Yeah, if he can give it a go, he'll give it a go. And even though James lives with a hearing impairment, the team in Kalgoorlie have figured out ways of making sure everyone can communicate when they're out fighting fires. When James is out at a fire with us, he has a special radio. Um, That radio vibrates. We've also got cards. We've got a green card and a red card. Uh, The green card basically means pack up. You know, we finished mopping up this log or if there is an emergency, um, the red card comes up and he knows to drop whatever he's doing, leave it where it is and head back to the truck instantly. Today in Australia Wide, we're going to take you inside that firefighting unit. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. But first, let's head to the remote Kimberley community of Mowanjum, about 10 kilometres southeast of Derby in Western Australia. The community will be one of the first to vote in the Indigenous Voice referendum in Australia, with the Electoral Commission opening a polling booth there today. It's one of 750 remote voter services that will open early to allow people in regional and remote Australia to cast their vote. The referendum, you've got to say it, is a mission for the Australian Electoral Commission. There are 60 remote teams travelling via four-wheel drive, light plane, helicopter and boats to make sure as many Australians can cast their vote as possible. Our reporter, Roseanne Maloney, is in Mowanjum and she joins me now. Now, first, Roseanne, can you describe the community? What's it like? Yeah, well, Sinead, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a small um, remote community here, but out at Moanjum, but um, of course it's not one of the smallest out in the Kimberley. Um, but it's been, it's been a fairly, you know, trickling sort of day in terms of people coming out here to vote. Um, I'm just standing outside the voting centre at the moment and there's sort of a little sausage sizzle going on for people that are coming to vote. There's, you know, sort of campaign signs. Um, on the outside and yeah it's all just happening at the Monjum community office where people are popping in to vote but yeah for those that you know have been out here before they'd know sort of you know the open streets we've got a few um lots of cars parked around a few houses and um a few dogs that have been coming to say hello and have tried to pop into the voting center as well <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of from the electoral commission I mean this is a mission how many electoral officers are there yeah, so there's there's only a handful of staff here today um, that are just out at Moanjum to organise the polling station here. Um, but they're one of three teams that have headed out from Broome across the Kimberley today. Uh, so we've got also teams out up at Columbaroo. There's also a team um, out at One Arm Point, which is on the Dampier Peninsula. 
Um, but yeah, the team here, it's, it's a handful of people. They're here to answer questions and help people understand, you know, how they should, not, not you know, what they should vote, but of course, how to vote um, properly. And yeah, so it, 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 the small team means that they can sort of get around a little bit easier. They're just traveling two cars. Um, the two, the, the group out here is about five people that are standing in the polling stations at the moment. Now, Moenjum is, is accessible by road, but at many of these Spots that the Commission are going to end up in aren't going to be accessible. How much do you know about that? Well, I've had a bit of a chat with some of the Commission staff here today. These these guys, the group here, they say they're pretty lucky because they're just heading up the Gibb River Road. So for them, they've just got to jump in a couple of four-wheel drives. But some of the other teams that they're working with or coordinating with heading it out of out in the Kimberley um, it's a very different story so you know some of the communities out here are just so remote um, people from the commission have said that you know they're not just driving out in a four-wheel drive but sometimes they might need several modes of transport to get there so they might start off in a four-wheel drive you know head out to the coast they might then get on a, a small aircraft fly somewhere else and then from there they might have to get in a boat and then after that they'll head back inland and then they might get in a, a minibus or another four-wheel drive. It's all pre-organised so they're not just sort of waiting for the next boat to come by but <laughs> it is a big, um, it's a really big operation for some of the staff out here and they have to you know plan this well in advance and they've also said you know they've got to accommodate for you know other things that you know, might be happening sometimes. Something might happen in one of the communities out here and they might for a short time have to delay things because, um, you know, they might, you know, might not be welcome for a little bit or there might also be weather events that could get in the way. The Kimberley can be pretty unpredictable. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into it for the the, commis- the Electoral Commission um, staff out here. certainly is. It's a logistical challenge if ever there was one. I can hear even the wind pick up as we're speaking. And as you said, weather is another part of it. Now, for people coming into Mowenjam today, they're one of the first to get to cast their vote in Australia. Uh, did you get a feel for how people felt about that or, or did they speak about how they were voting? Yeah, I've been able to have a chat with a few people, Sinead. They've sort of been, you know, as I said, trickling in throughout the day um, and I've sort of asked people, you know, how they're voting and why they're voting that way as well. It's been a pretty mixed, you know, response I, from who I've spoken to, which of course, you know, is just the people that I've seen come through in the, the few hours that we've been here. Um, there's been a lot of people that have said they're voting yes um, and then there's been those that have said they're voting no and of, you know, a lot of the reasons that we might have heard before. Um, I think one of the main things that I tend, that I'm sort of hearing today is that a lot of people coming through are saying that they, they feel like they haven't had a lot of information. Uh, some people that work with the Moanjin Aboriginal Corporation out here and they've also talked about, you know, how a lot of people have set, wanted a little bit more information. Um, sorry, you can probably hear the cars driving out, in, out of here at the moment. But, um, yeah, they, they've said that a lot of people have wanted more information and um, it's been great that they have this remote early voting out here and that you know the 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 AEC is actually coming out to the community but in some ways um, it's also a shame because they get a a few weeks less than everyone else to be able to reach the community or um, you know even for campaigners that I spoke to today here as well they said that that's made a little bit difficult as well. And from that side Roseanne has has there been much presence of campaigners in communities or uh, you know are the campaigners talking to people as they go to vote or you know, how's that been managed? Mm. 
Interestingly, out here, there's really only been a yes, um, yes vote presence. So when we got here, there was signs all over the fence and sort of set up on the grass outside the community office and it was all yes vote signage. And when I went and spoke to some campaigners, they were all yes vote campaigners. Um, there was a few people that were uh, sort of no vote campaigners and they, they were sort of um, just, you know, voicing how they felt about things out loud so when people were walking through they could hear that you know things about why they're they're voting no but they didn't have any signs up or anything like that so it's been a pretty heavy in terms of the campaigning side of things at least today it's been a pretty heavy um yes vote presence i would say it's very interesting or that you know what's going on in the various different pockets so yesterday was a public holiday in wa hence this is day one in wa in terms of these booths are there any more booths that'll be opening up as we move closer to october 14th is that how it's going to work is it a kind of lapse thing yeah so um in all of the communities booths will pretty much be popping up once um, and they'll be moving all around the Kimberley over the next three weeks uh, they'll sort of move through different um, locations so as I mentioned there's you know Arjuloon or also known as One Arm Point um, and then also up at Columbaroo today but then tomorrow um, there'll be a number of other pop-ups that are happening as well there's one out at Beagle Bay which is also on the peninsula not um, around near where Arjuloon is as well uh, and that'll sort of trickle on throughout the next few weeks. The AEC has also been saying every time I've spoken to them that they want to make sure people know they can check on their website where those pop-ups will be, um, just so they know where they can head to. But, of course, people that don't make it to the pop-ups as well, the AEC has been saying that they can still cast postal votes. But people that I've sort of spoken here today say that they feel like the people that... It'll be pretty much all the votes that they get for these areas they reckon are going to come through the pop-ups it's not there probably won't be as many people that are sending in a postal vote roseanne maloney in moandum thanks very much for chatting to australia wide today thanks Sinead. abc australia wide country people can't be discriminated against not in tumor they were homesick you know the poor little lumps a flood is a flood and a fire is a fire and a drought is a drought you're listening to abc australia wide on abc radio for beekeepers across New South Wales, dealing with the deadly varroa mite outbreak over the past year has been a waking nightmare. Owners could do little but stand by and watch as authorities carried out mandatory euthanasia of around 30,000 hives throughout the state. This is a grim reality facing those in the industry. Until last week, when the decision was made to abandon eradication efforts and opt for a management plan instead. For some beekeepers, this change came just in the nick of time, but for others, the damage was already done. From Kempsey in New South Wales, reporter Tina Quinn spoke with beekeeper Daniil Bannum about the toll this past year has taken on her business and, of course, her family. In total, we had uh, 480 uh, destroyed on the almond farm at Griffith two weeks before the decision to go to management and then just last week um, they destroyed our kids four hives at the shed and that was really heartbreaking um, they're the hives that Daniel my partner uses to teach the kids beekeeping and yeah that was that kind of tipped us over the edge a bit to see their little hives destroyed yeah the kids know no so we haven't told the kids and um that their hives have been destroyed yeah, we just don't have the heart to tell them um, we'll try and rebuild them hives and 
replace them with different ones at the shed so that they don't know any different because, yeah, it's too hard. There have been growing calls for quite some time for the national management strategy to change to management and, and not eradication. You lost so much. Do you, do you feel frustrated that the decision wasn't made sooner? Uh, absolutely. We feel that um, once the spread of the mite um, was found in the almond orchards in different locations across New South Wales, that the DPI wouldn't have the resources to be able to keep up with the eradication. We feel at that time they should have paused and reassessed the situation and stopped eradicating hives, and that would have prevented a lot of hives needlessly being destroyed. Um, we feel all the hives destroyed in the past month have just... It's just been in vain. Like Our 480 hives for us, that's two-thirds of our business, and to not not be compensated fairly for that that income that's now lost um, because it's going to take quite a while to rebuild them hives. In terms of the mental health aspect, many of your fellow beekeepers in the industry have been suffering like yourself and and, and Daniel. This decision clearly couldn't have come soon enough, could it? Yeah, that's that's correct, Tina. So um, this has been... I can't stress how much this has been very taxing on people's mental health... Um, Beekeepers have been supporting each other by checking in daily with phone calls and stuff. Um, but we th- we feel that if this decision didn't go to management from eradication, that there would have been people that um, could have been looking at suiciding um, because of the toll it's been having on their families and their finances, uh, their mental health. I harvest my own honey for myself and my neighbours and my friends. Um, It's purely because I wanted to do beekeeping. Once you start beekeeping and you see what the bees do and how crucial they are to pollinating even my veggies, um, you have a lot more respect. It doesn't become about the honey anymore. It becomes about looking after those little insects because they are so crucial to our existence. So we've now been given the option whether we want to go ahead with euthanasia. If people have varroa mite in their hives, they have that option. I think they've given the beekeepers a sense of ownership of the situation and I think that's what really it boils down to. I think it would have been so much uh, less stressful for a lot of beekeepers. We've now got so many families whose lives are directly impacted financially and emotionally through the loss of their bees. I don't rely on my bees for my income. You know, it's, it's purely for pleasure. What about those people? They needed that management plan beforehand and it wasn't there. The option wasn't there for them. Amateur beekeeper Mara Rogers finishing that story from Tina Quinn in Kempsey in New South Wales. And you're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. Now, if you like listening to the sounds of people and places that make up this big country we all live in, why not subscribe to the Australia Wide podcast? Every day on the programme, we bring you stories from all over rural and regional Australia. And it's always a bit of a surprise what we might have on. So let me tell you how to find the Australia Wide podcast. 
first up, you need to head to the App Store on your mobile or your device. Then you search for the ABC Listen app and it'll pop up. It's a pink icon and you need to download that. And that way it'll be on your mobile or device whenever you want it. Um, And you find loads of stuff there. There's loads of stuff, anything from bird sounds to meditation sounds. And also you'll find Australia Wide. Um, If you search for Australia Wide, it'll pop up too. It's a blue icon with a yellow signpost. And then if you can, we'd really appreciate if you subscribe. That way you've great stories from the bush at your fingertips whenever you have the time to listen to them. It might be when you're in your car, at home making the dinner or out for an evening walk. You're listening to Australia Wide. I didn't know Melbourne much. I knew where the race courses were. I'm making signs for the sleepy lizards. Basically less eggs this year than what we would have expected. The houses that are near the edge of the bush, they might encounter a snake up to four times a year, a death adder. Um, Just, yeah, see how it goes. On ABC Radio. Now let's head to Mount Isa in Queensland to a huge big gym where young men are learning to box. When they're not in the gym, they're out on the scrubby bushland around Mount Isa with gym owner Brodie Germain, who's teaching them all about country. Eyes peeled, they're searching for coolabout trees, perfect for carving didgeridoos. Brodie Germain tells our reporter Julia Andre he sees himself in these kids and he wants to make sure they don't go down the path he did at their age. Julia Andre has more. This is a coolabout tree. So this is how we make didgeridoos. 26-year-old Aboriginal man Brodie Germain is leading a line of Indigenous boys through the scrubby bushland surrounding Mount Isa. As the sun begins to set, Brodie reminisces about how different his life is now compared to five years ago. There was a few times I got arrested and I got um, in trouble with police for doing things. Um, there was a there was a one time that really scared me. Those encounters were a wake-up call. I would have ended up in jail. And it's nothing to be proud of. It's, it's jail, you know, that's nothing to be proud of on my end, but it's the honest truth, you know. If I continue to, to do the substance misuse, you know, the alcohol and that, I would have ended up in jail and I would have living in that cycle, which unfortunately, you know, our people think is the norm, which isn't the, isn't the norm. Brody began to piece his life together, becoming a personal trainer and eventually opening his own gym last year. He soon realised that other young Aboriginal men in Mount Isa were struggling with the same issues he had. The young people in this community, they think it's for them to fit in, for them to be gangsters, what we say is... um. They need to steal cars, they need to interact with negative role models because, you know, they want this image of being tough and strong. He began to take these young men out on country, making didgeridoos, cooking on an open fire and supporting them to open up about how they were feeling. I talked to them about my story, I talked to them about, you know, when I struggled, I struggled with my mental health, I struggled with, you know, harmful substances, alcohol. You know, I I know the, the hype of getting into trouble with police. I know that feeling and I think just being real, open and honest with them and being real with these young fellas, that's why I feel that I connect with them. But also it's educating them that, you know, these choices, they're not the right choices. But yeah, I think being real with these young fellas, you need to be open and honest. Brody's success has caught the attention of the government and he's now working with youth justice to target kids at high risk of engaging in youth crime. He's working with Muay Thai gym owner Michael New on the Transition to Success program. 
failure always being you know in their pathway but having a positive coach or positive role model being able to coach them across that bridge of adolescence is imperative. Over 12 weeks 15 young people attended weekly sessions with the pair and were challenged both mentally and physically. Uh, we had 15 youth um, and all the 15 youth graduated at the end of their term and majority of them with job opportunities as well. The idea of being a role model is something Mr Jermaine is still getting used to and he isn't afraid to admit that he still struggles with his own mental health at times. But it's his culture that guides him through it. You know, the, the feeling I get when I help these young fellows in community, um, them just turning up to the gym, them turning up on a Saturday morning um, where we take him out bush for the day, that's a win for me. Julia Andre speaking to gym owner Brody Germain in Mount Eyes. And if you want to read more about this story, head to Australia Wide's webpage. There's a digital article there to read. With El Nino declared and this summer expected to be hot and dry, Australia needs capable and brave firefighters ready to protect the community. One such firefighter is James Tucker, who joined his local crew last year. Battling bushfires is hard for everyone, but for James, who has a hearing impairment, it's been a fight to get there. From Kalgoorlie in WA's Goldfields, our reporter, Julia Bertolio, caught up with James at the end of his shift. James Stanka has always wanted to be a firefighter, but it's been a battle for him to become one. When we got a baby boy from Kalgoorlie, I was born in Kalgoorlie, born with a hearing disability, and found out when I was two or three years old. His dedication did not go unnoticed by parks and wildlife, which offered him a full-time job in conservation. But he wanted more. Since last summer, James has been working with the fire suppression team, and the position was hard-earned. I trained hard doing courses, medicals and the fire fitness test. It was difficult. I had to pass my medical with my hearing and get the approval from the big boss in Perth. To make sure James can work safely, the team uses a mix of communication methods. As fire management officer Chris Curtis explains. When James is out at a fire with us, he has a special radio. Um, that radio vibrates. So when we need to talk with him or communicate with him, um, we hit that vibrating function. We've also got cards. We've got a green card and a red card. Uh, the green card basically means pack up. You know, we finished mopping up this log or if there is an emergency, um, the red card comes up and he knows to drop whatever he's doing, leave it where it is and head back to the truck like, instantly. Back yep. a One of James's workmates, Tiana Jones, says inclusive workplaces are good for everyone. Those people are out there just probably with amazing ideas and things that we need from them. Um, So if we don't include that in there just because of their disability, then we're probably missing out on some great knowledge. I'm local. For me, it's important to protect the land and people from bushfires. For example, James Stalker is an Indigenous man who knows well his country. 
well, he's he's awesome in regards to when you're out in the bush, he will be able to pick tracks that I can't even see. Um, he's really good at remembering where we put things. So if we put camera traps out in the bush, he will go like six months later and remember exactly where they are, which I struggle to do. Um, I use a GPS. So that sort of thing he brings to the team is awesome. So no, 100%, I think we should be including anyone and anyone who wants to join in. <laughs> it's quite easy if you've got someone who's willing to try um, and, and is keen to be there. Um, I think attitude comes into it a lot. So James is just wonderful. His work ethic and approach admired by his mates. One of them guys who is really committed, very smart. Sometimes, you know, I don't even think he think he's deaf. He just straight in as a happy bloke. Being deaf and having a hearing problem, I mean, it doesn't stop him. Nothing's too hard for him, really. Yeah, if he can give it a go, he'll give it a go. I love him, my drum and I love my job and being full time. I love doing field trips and being out on country. What a great story. That was our reporter in Kalgoorlie, Julia Bertolio, talking to Goldfields Parks and Wildlife Firefighter James Tucker and, of course, his colleagues, who obviously can't speak highly enough of him. And that was Australia Wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I'll be back with you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.